Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about love and happiness. This time, it's personal. I'm going to do a little stalling right at the beginning and talk about various uh, housekeeping matters related to inappropriate conversations and walk the earth. And I'll get to why I'm stalling here in just a moment. Inappropriate conversations can be found at www.inappropriateconversations.org. It is at that website that I post entries for both walk the earth and the inappropriate conversations podcast on soundcloud.com. I can be found at IC underscore Greg. And from there, I've gone back to the very first of the Inappropriate Conversations shows from 2010, and I'm reposting a clip. It's a clip with a link to the .org website, but it gives people a sense of kind of what what is the uh, spoken aspect, not just the planned verbiage around a given show. So it's sort of a way of promoting the very beginning, the origin story, so to speak, of Inappropriate Conversations. IC underscore Greg is also the way I can be found on Twitter. Uh, I also am IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com for people who want to reach out to me via email. On Facebook, I have a presence both for Inappropriate Conversations, which is listed as a cause, and for Walk the Earth. Walk the Earth, frankly, doesn't have that many followers, so uh, there's an opportunity there, I suppose. Other ways of interacting with Inappropriate Conversations here lately have been appearances on podcasts like Greetings from Nowhere, and take him with you. And last year, there's a post for the Tech Support Rich show, which is available to people who have subscribed to Simply Everything on www.simplysyndicated.com. Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth are also both on Stitcher. Stitcher Stitcher.com gives you a way of listening to podcasts on the go. I do it via my iPhone. There's also a Stitcher app on the Android store. Normally, I would handle this sort of house cleaning, at the end of an episode, or where appropriate along the way, but I'm frankly stalling. I've had this love and happiness topic on the calendar twice earlier this year, and twice I've moved it. I thought, right before my wife and I took a trip to England, that I'd be able to squeeze in one more episode of Inappropriate Conversations, and we just ran out of time trying to prepare for international travel. So I simply bumped it to the first show when we got back, but that was really very naive. The first show when we got back from that trip was going to be talking about the trip. That was seemingly inevitable. Would have been true if the trip went poorly, but since the trip went fantastically, inevitable that I was going to have to talk about the trip. So I moved it back here into the latter part of July, and part of the reason that I've decided I'm going to make good on it and do the best I can with this particular topic is that, for one thing, the women on the show Greetings from Nowhere kind of asked the question a while back. Uh, one of them wondering if if I was just celebrating a 27th wedding anniversary, what was the rest of that story? My wife and I have been together for 33 years, so there's plenty of story there. So I decided that I would I would make good on that request and talk a little bit about my relationship with my wife and do so under the heading of a David Sanborn song. So we'll get to the different drummer in, in a bit, maybe near the end. It all does connect to one another because... 
we've been a couple for as long as I've been aware of his music. So the different drummers, one of, this is one of those different drummers who's been the soundtrack, not just of my life, but uh, prevalent in the soundtrack of this one particular relationship. Now, as I told both Christina and Nicole on uh, Greetings from Nowhere, there is actually an origin story out there. Uh, I had written a poem a, a long time ago called Where 16 Equals Forever. And in this case, that assumes that maybe forever means 33 years and counting, right? That's Inappropriate Conversations number 57. And I'm not sure I can talk about this topic without hitting a few other things related to that relationship. There's a more recent inappropriate conversations out there where I shared some observations from something I call letters to myself. Uh, episode 112 of inappropriate conversations saying no to myself does not deal with my relationship with my wife, but it deals with relationships before that point in time. And in one case, a potential relationship even during sort of answers some of the questions about um, how do you stay, not just how do you stay in a very stable relationship for 33 years, but as I'll get to in a minute, how do you do that when you're separated for a, an almost a full year right in the midst of all that? But it, there seems to be something incongruous to me, and I know it's true, so I'm going to speak about it, but it seems inconsistent that I would be extremely hesitant to talk about a relationship that I would describe as the single most important relationship of my life, one of the defining relationships of my life. And I think that the reason that this makes some sense is that the more important something is, the more careful you are with it, the more eager you are to protect it. And I know that if I gave myself permission to speak fully and completely freely, especially on a podcast where the entire point is speaking inappropriately as necessary on topics of you know, politics and religion, but also sex and popular culture. I could get myself in trouble in a very big hurry if I started talking frankly and freely about sexuality inside this one relationship. It's funny, but I just have a feeling early on in this recording that I'm going to say or do something along the way to get the explicit language tag. And I can only imagine what my wife's reaction would be to seeing this particular episode post, knowing what it is, and noting the explicit language tag on it. Because obviously, there is no relationship in my life that I'm more qualified to be explicit about than this one. And yet this is a relationship where I'm probably less likely to want to speak explicitly. Again, it's, it's mine, so it's private in a way that I'm going to try to keep private. So how do you talk about it? I talk about it honestly and, and skirt that issue. I don't know yet. I didn't know in March, I didn't know in April, and I don't know in July here of 2014. So not wanting to repeat myself too much, not wanting to overlap on that previous origin story, the originating moments in relationships kind of idea, I will instead just say that uh, this upcoming Christmas, in fact, will be the 34th year, Christmas Eve, I was driving a friend of mine from high school who was too young to drive over to the other side of well, a different school district, not the other side of town, but crossing the lines on the south side of the city we lived in to go from the school district we were in to another. Now, for me, crossing lines on school districts, I measured things by school districts. Many times I would tell people that uh, I don't really know my way around a city unless I know the schools, that I could navigate from almost any point from any school, not just high schools, but middle schools and elementary schools as well. And maybe part of the reason for that was that I lived right across the street from my high school. So high schools were landmarks for me. 
But I drove this person, uh, we'll call him Scott, over to where my wife, Cheryl, this girl I'd never met before, lived. And there were a couple of motivations. I really wasn't in that big of a hurry to spend a lot of time on Christmas Eve with Scott. We weren't that close. And I'd never met Cheryl before, so I had no idea. But I was eager to get out of the house. It was one of those situations where parents were preparing the place for company, and I was nothing but a distraction or a problem. The longer I stayed, the more likely it was I was going to make somebody angry. And now, being old enough to drive, and really being old enough to drive, this is the first Christmas I was old enough to drive myself around. Uh, junior year in high school, I was one of the younger men in my graduating class, young men in my graduating class. So I, I took him over to the other side of town to meet this girl. And uh, I found her to be charming. And we always had some doubts about him. This was a guy who either you know, made up stories because he was overcompensating for something. My theory, in retrospect, looking back on it, was that he was probably bisexual and was probably overcompensating for you know, whatever, in a very red state, might be a backlash against that sort of mentality. He was, at a young age, 14 years old maybe, uh, sexually active already, and very sexually frank in the way he spoke about things. He once told um, both Cheryl and me on separate occasions that he broke his nose at a summer camp. He may have only been 13 at the time, for all I know, 13 or 14 years old. He broke his nose because he had talked a girl into sitting on his face and being unprepared or really not very uh, skilled, I guess would be the word for it, on the logistics of cunnilingus, uh, ended up getting his nose broken instead because she didn't sit in the right way. And it was just probably a naive approach for both of them. So this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with. And not on this occasion, but on another occasion when I went over there during this winter break, it really got a bad feeling because we went over there with no plan. Uh, not that we had one on Christmas Eve either, but we went over there with no plan. So as I'm driving around to a destination that had not yet been identified, he was getting um, friendly in the backseat in a way that made her very uncomfortable. I could tell by what I was at first not trying to overhear, but then unmistakably overhearing. And I ended up simply navigating the car back home to her house. Now I realize that I'm somebody who can at times suffer from a bit of a savior complex, but I was very careful in this instance not to meddle. It seemed to me that if she was going to break up with him, that was going to take care of itself. And at no point was I really thinking that I was going to pursue any sort of relationship with Cheryl anyway. And as I expected, she did break up with him. It didn't happen immediately because we'd already arranged for a double date to happen on New Year's Eve, and that double date did occur. But she had kind of put her guard up because of his inappropriate behavior. And thankfully, on that New Year's Eve occasion, uh, nobody crossed any lines. Uh, it was I didn't have to cancel any of that. Again, being the designated driver for three people who at the time weren't old enough to drive. These are stories that I have in my head before my wife and I started dating. That's the months of December and January. Our first date was at the end of May. And so there's a certain amount of time that went by that I described in the earlier podcast as nothing more than a subtitle reading four months later, right? But it is interesting when you connect the dots between the first part of that story and the last part of that story, that when you're living in that moment and you're 16 years old yourself and you're dealing with people who are 15 and 14 and 16 years old, you sometimes forget that now as an adult, 
33 years in the future, I look back and say, wow, it's hard to believe that we were that young because now that seems very, very young. And yet, there you are. Uh, very young in a situation where uh, a young woman's being put in a position of having to slap a, f a face <laughs> to get a person to stop inappropriate behavior. One of the things that happened, I think, when I started dating Cheryl later was that I, I certainly knew that I was kind of being compared to the guy before, because even though he, again, he and I weren't good friends, and it didn't bother me a bit if we stopped even being friendly to each other over the fact that she dropped him, and later on, a few months later, Cheryl and I started dating. That didn't bother me, but the fact was that if there was going to be any comparison with him, that, A, I was going to come out on top from the gentleman's scale, just, it was a given, right? I was had zero experience, and I wouldn't have behaved the way he did even if I'd had a tremendous amount of sexual experience and wanted my current girlfriend to pick up where my last girlfriend left off. That was never my mentality, but I knew I sort of had an edge on this other guy. But the other thing is I also knew that I was, you know, dating somebody who'd, you know, perhaps been, you know, not treated with the utmost of respect. So most of the initial dating, a lot of the things, you know, the, the first kiss was prompted by her, not by me. I was very careful and cautious. There was probably a couple of dates where there wasn't even a kiss at the door. Part of that was, again, me being careful and cautious, relatively inexperienced. And part of it was her parents. When we eventually did get to the point where we'd been dating for, you know, several months, and there was a kiss at the door at the end of the night, uh, her mom was not at all comfortable with the fact that kissing was happening out on the front, you know, porch or, you know, front step where all the neighbors could see. And so I was also aware of the fact that there might have been conversation about whether a kiss on the front door was, quote, practically having sex on the yard, unquote. So both my now wife and me had issues to deal with where our parents, moms in particular, were extremely uncomfortable with the fact that the relationship was carrying on as long as, as it had, that, and I, I'm sure I would feel the same way now in retrospect, that if your 16-year-old son and your 16-year-old daughter start a relationship that's going to turn out to be forever, almost everybody would come along and advise against that. You know, you, you hear on the one hand romanticized ideas of high school sweethearts getting married, but just as often as that, you, it's the story of somebody's first marriage, right? That that's how things begin and things go downhill very swiftly from there. And I didn't get you know, overt pressure to stop the relationship, but my, par my parents were going to lose any sleep if my first year in college was as far away as Chicago. So when I was picking universities and trying to nail down what my final choice was, as a journalism student, getting accepted to Northwestern is a pretty big coup. I don't know that I would say that Northwestern is a better journalism school than Columbia or Stanford or you know, Harvard, for that matter, but I, I have a feeling it probably is, that probably at least in the 1980s, um, if you were ranking all the journalism schools in the country, that Northwestern would be at or very near the top of that list. Inside what we would call then the Big Eight part of the country, the University of Missouri at Columbia also had a sterling reputation. So my college last three decisions, where I was a senior in high school, my, my girlfriend was a junior in high school, came down to Northwestern, where I'd been accepted but couldn't afford to go, University of Missouri at Columbia, where I don't know whether I'd actually formalized getting accepted yet, 
probably getting accepted wasn't going to be an issue. I mean, if you can get into Northwestern, you can get into a public school, even an out-of-state public school. But when we visited that campus, my parents my and Cheryl and, and I, there was something about the distance that bothered me, whereas the distance to Chicago was a plane flight. So it, you know, it didn't seem quite as far to be going there. It was more removed by a mile, but it wasn't quite as far. And I also just did not, I didn't click with the campus. Because my older siblings had both gone to Oklahoma State University, I already understood that campus. So if that was the third choice I was considering, well then, I already knew what it was like, and I was trying to grade other opportunities against that experience. And to be blunt about it, you know, Columbia, Missouri didn't measure up. I ended up going to Oklahoma State University, but I will be a liar if I didn't say that one of the big motivations behind that was that I already knew that that's where Cheryl was going to go. Her parents both went to Oklahoma State. Her grandparents were active in university life. She was a two-generation legacy, for want of a better word, when it came to that university. And her her father had told her pretty bluntly, partly because of the rivalry between the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University, but also really because of the family history, that if she wanted to go to the University of Oklahoma, she'd pretty much be cut off and she was going to pay her own way through school. And if she wanted to go to Oklahoma State University, it was completely funded, totally covered. Dad was going to take care of it. So she knew that she was going to go to Oklahoma State, and so did I. Therefore, choosing to go to that university a year ahead of her kind of lined things up to where I almost in some ways made a decision between this relationship and a lifetime of debt. Let <laughs> me explain that again, because that seems like it's kind of a no-brainer, right? But I would understand somebody who said, who would say to me, you had the opportunity to go to one of the most prestigious private schools in the country, and all you had to do was take on a tremendous amount of debt to do it. Well, we all know students every day who, when faced with that decision, choose debt. Now, we have an entire cottage industry of student loans built around this concept. And although I didn't really fully understand at the time kind of what the pay range would be for a journalist, even a good one, the, the short answer is not that good. I did understand that it was probably not that good, and, and I was worried about what it might mean if I was carrying what, again, really, I'm, I'm almost not exaggerating, could have felt like a lifetime worth of debt. So to move to Chicago, have higher expenses from a room and board perspective, be that far removed from everybody in my family, and to have higher tuition with almost no student aid whatsoever was one option. And the other option was to stay an hour and 20 minutes away from home and go to the university where this crucial relationship could carry on. Now, during that year where I was at school as a freshman in college and future wife was still a high school senior, we had sort of an agreement that we weren't going to make such a big deal out of other dating, that it just seemed like that was an unhealthy expectation to lay on anybody. And my wife did some dating of other people in the marching band, and I went on dates with people where there was sort of an understanding right up front that none of it was serious. I outlined some of this in that Inappropriate Conversations episode called Saying No to Myself. You end up with an interesting decision to make because as a college freshman facing peer pressure from the other men that you encounter in your living space in this uh, dormitory setting and meeting women who like the men away from mom and dad for the very first time, you can almost get away with anything you want. I hadn't figured out how I was going to say no. How are you going to explain to somebody who was prepared to go places sexually that you hadn't been before that you, as a heterosexual male, 
were going to say no, no matter how attractive the woman was, to save that experience for a high school sweetheart. It just, it seemed better, safer perhaps, to date a little bit more casually than that. To be intentionally the third wheel in certain situations. So I spent a lot of time that I would go out socially with my uh, roommate's twin sister, where she and I were both in a very similar situation in terms of having an expectation that didn't need to be explained about the fact that we were simply accompanying people we cared about, or at least her brother who we both cared about, that there was no sexual component to any of that. But I did have to go through an entire year of trying to make sure that I could pick up the relationship that had stopped in high school and pick it up on the other side when we were both going to be in college. And that was probably an an interesting and precarious time. Because when you get past that, we were essentially inseparable. Wouldn't be a surprise to me if I met people from college who never really thought of us as Greg or as Cheryl, but it was always Greg and Cheryl, or perhaps the other side, Cheryl and Greg, that it was essentially a package deal. So all the way through college, only a couple of occasions sharing any direct classes with each other, maybe one that I can think of where I know we were in the same classroom at the same time. But I set up my coursework in such a way that we graduated at the same time. So she pursued a four-year degree and had an internship that followed it, and I therefore needed to be on the five-year plan. The two ways to be on the five-year plan that I was aware of was one, to be a bad student and have to retake courses and disappoint your parents and generate a bad grade point average, and I didn't go that route. I instead went the other route, where in addition to the major degree that I was in and working on the college newspaper, got three minor degrees. So I simply added additional hours to what might have otherwise been the minimum. And in my last semester, I think I only had either six or at the most nine hours left to accumulate. And one of those courses I took uh, pass-fail, because at that point it was just meaningless to my degree. It was the wrong time to be pursuing music appreciation or any sort of music major angle. My minor degrees were in political science, religious studies, and English. And in English, I spent a lot of that time focusing on film. And the other thing I did along the way, because in the last couple semesters, that fifth year, I had more time on my hands. The class load was fairly light, is I did do some auditing. I crashed, I guess the word you heard is I crashed some business courses with friends. By then, you're kind of, you're at a point on campus where you can kind of come and go as you please. And as long as the professor you're dealing with doesn't mind you being in the room just to observe, then... You know, it was no problem. And that was that was the way it always played out. I, I never was asked uh, to leave in a situation like that. One course work, I actually went back to the Introduction to Religious Studies course that I'd taken my first semester of my freshman year. I audited that course as well, essentially taking the class with my roommate, partly because I wanted to, it was one of my favorite classes in college. I didn't mind seeing the material again. And it's it's a very different thing when you know you don't have to take the test. You're just kind of in the room. But the other thing, it was the only professor from the uh, original lineup of professors in the religious studies department that I'd never taken a course with. I did a shotgun approach to religious studies where I hit the world religions end to end, meaning that I didn't necessarily have a lot of advanced coursework in anything like Buddhism, but I had a course with that professor, at least one course with each one of them. And this was the one the professor I'd missed out on. So I wanted and uh, approached him and said, hey, do you mind if I'm 
in the room. I've already taken the coursework, did very well pursuing a minor degree. In fact, by then I think I'd already accumulated enough hours to have the minor degree. And he, of course, didn't mind. I think he probably was flattered by the fact that I was actually wanting to learn from a professor that I was otherwise not going to get to learn from just because of the nature of picking courses on a semester-by-semester basis. So I filled in the time well, but essentially the game plan was let's graduate together. So in the month of May of that year, we graduated. There's a 10-day period that's a total blur to me. I can't think of what might have happened during that time. Moving out of college, driving the hour and 20 minutes back to the city where we lived, temporarily moving back into our respective parents' homes, and finishing up arrangements for a wedding. So the beginning of the month you graduate, at the end of the month you get married. And the first week of June, coming back from honeymoon, I started my first quote-unquote real job, and my wife started her internship. So a couple of funny stories related to the wedding period of time. One of them is that the church organist at the church where we got married, it was the church where I'd grown up, was a longtime family friend. One of the motivations for getting married in that church instead of the church that my wife went to was that this person was going to be able to be the accompanist for our wedding. It was important to me. My wife, I think, perhaps humored me, but it was really important for me. But something happened, and the church organ broke. And in the weekend before that Monday wedding day, we had to scramble to get uh, a new organ brought in. So there was a lot of that last-minute drama that I think is going to be true any time. The other reason that we didn't get married in uh, my wife's family's church is actually covered in Inappropriate Conversations number 54, I believe is the one. So what I think I talk about the worst, uh, yeah, the worst Easter Sunday service experience I've ever had. Um, the pastor of that church was still the pastor of that church when it came time for us to decide to get married. And we made a vow. This person was not going to marry us. He seemed to have almost no clue about what, even covering the Sermon on the Mount, seemed to have no clue on what Jesus was actually teaching, that in his mind Jesus had had rolled down a steel gate between the people we call Christians and the rest of the world, that there was no outreach in his ministry. His gospel didn't have much good news in it. So he'd made a decision to go with the church where I was had grown up instead of the church where she had spent her high school years. The other funny thing was that we realized that since we were getting on something like a six o'clock in the morning flight to go to the U.S. Virgin Islands for a honeymoon, that there was going to be a night where we needed to actually spend our wedding night in town and you know, have a reception. We actually had a reception and then a party after the reception. Uh, so we did all the, um, the picture-taking photo opportunity sort of stuff, the cutting of the cake, the rice, all that sort of thing, um, still in tuxedo and, and wedding gown. And then as part of our plan, we changed into you know, more casual attire and basically had a college party. So there was no plan for a college graduation party, but our our wedding reception after the reception party did kind of turn into a college graduation party of sorts. And after that, we went to a local hotel. We spent the night, got up first thing the next morning, or even before the crack of dawn, to get to the airport to catch that early morning flight. So we're trying to decide, well, where where do you want to stay in town on your honeymoon night? when all the other plans before that had been focused on getting to the Virgin Islands. And so we were looking at various places and actually going and looking at their honeymoon suites. And I'd noticed more than one occasion, actually, at the end of college, 
there appeared to be somebody in town who must have looked like me, even though he didn't necessarily act the way I acted. On a couple of different occasions, I can remember going into a restaurant and being told that I would not be served, that I was not going to be served because of what I did the last time I was there, that apparently this individual, who bears some resemblance to me, was getting criminal trespass warnings <laughs> in places because of, I'm guessing, raising hell at one point or another. So we finally found a hotel that we really liked that we thought would be the, the right spot, close to the highway, easy access to the route to the airport. It was shaped a bit like a castle, which was kind of cool in terms of what the hotel looked like on the exterior. But we wanted to see the honeymoon suite, or what would be the honeymoon suite for us, before we you know, made that the final plan for that night. This was probably activity going on in those two weeks between graduation and the wedding day. And I'll never forget, for whatever reason, my mom was with us too. So my wife and I, fiance and I, show up, and I asked the lady at the desk uh, that we were planning to make a reservation, and we gave her the date and everything that was available, the room we wanted was available, and I asked to see it. She looked at me and she goes, Sir, you were here last night. You don't need to see the room. What's going on? What are you trying to pull? And I, I was like, I, first off, I'm looking at my fiance, making sure that nobody misunderstands that I had not used the honeymoon suite of this hotel 24 hours or you know 12 hours before this conversation was taking place. And so we squared all that away and, and settled down. And it's just, you know, this doppelganger, it was probably good that I moved away from that state and over to, you know, four or five states away <laughs> eventually. Because, again, uh, I can't have somebody who looks like me causing that much trouble. It's, it's, it's like the plot of a Twilight Zone episode or an Edgar Allan Poe short story. It just can't happen. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. So, we got married. Lovely ceremony. Everything that I think we wanted to have done in the reception was done. And we uh, hop on a plane, go on the honeymoon. Uh, I got sick during that trip, which is not ideal. And for a while, when my wife and I would just talk about how, you know... Uh, Let's, let me put it this way. I was healthier and had fewer stomach issues on this recent trip to England than perhaps any cross-border or cross-ocean trip I've ever had. don't have the strongest stomach in the world. It doesn't take much uh, airline food, for example, to throw me off. And uh, so one of the things I've learned is that the vegetarian dish is a better way to go whenever you're being served airline food because it's not good to not eat if you're on that kind of a flight of that length. But at the same time, I, I well, let's just say the chicken didn't agree with me. We have moments in our in our marriage which you look at and you say, hey, if, if somebody was looking for signs to tell them that things aren't going the way they should go, you pick a church because you like the organist and the organ breaks. You have a big hassle trying to get a hotel to stay at the night before your, on your honeymoon night, the night before you fly out to what's formerly your honeymoon, because the person at the desk insinuates that you've been spending many nights at that hotel previously. All these sort of things would be a bad sign. Getting ill on your honeymoon in any way whatsoever is a bad sign. But I think as a couple, we just had a forever focus and didn't let those sorts of things bother us. We made a kind of an intentional decision not to have kids right away. Now, when you make a decision not to have kids right away, there's a couple things that that can mean. And it can mean that you uh, don't try to get pregnant, but whatever happens, happens. It's not the route we went. 
we looked at this from the perspective of that we were not going, I wasn't going to take for granted that we weren't going to be getting pregnant almost immediately. It may be that my wife just struck me as being too fertile. I'm going to try to find, and this is where this gets tricky, that I could get myself in trouble even by handing out compliments, right? But from the perspective of her body type and her body shape, she just seemed like a woman who was built to have children. And I was just convinced that uh, one slip up and we would be starting down the parental course sooner than we were really ready to do that. And there were good reasons to wait. Uh, first off, you know, my job, right out of college, didn't pay $14,000 a year. I still look back on that era and say I was the only person making any money to speak of. I mean, there, was, there was no paycheck coming from her, quote-unquote, last year of school, working in a hospital. And so I don't know how we were able to successfully manage. That's not a lot of money to use to pay rent on an apartment to pay for food. We got by, I suppose. But we weren't 100% sure where we were even going to live. Uh, it's unusual, I would think, to work at a hospital as an intern with a class full of other interns and just assume that when that internship's over, you're going to get a job at that hospital. It's pretty typical to actually end up uh, sending resumes far and wide and end up relocating, which is kind of what ended up happening. So we didn't want to presume to be planting roots sooner than we were in what I would call the right soil. And we probably lived, well, we did live in three different cities before we actually had kids, trying to get to the point where we were actually settled in. I switched not just jobs, but careers, for one thing. So trying to not get pregnant during that first year, well, first off, we had an advantage. We were not around each other as much as you'd like to be in that first year of marriage. Her hours of work were something like 6 to 3 p.m., my hours of work were something like 3 to midnight, give or take. We were ships passing in the night almost every time we went to work. But the other thing that we did to try to make sure that we weren't starting a family sooner than we wanted to was a very strict adherence to two methods of birth control. One of them, top-notch in terms of effectiveness. And the other one, you know, better than the guesswork of the rhythm method. So it was usually some combination of condom and birth control, Sometimes condom withdrawal and birth control. Just doing everything in our power to make sure. And you know what? We finally did get settled in two cities later. The wisdom of this point of view, to me, seemed to be beyond mere human wisdom. I'm not going to say that God told me to use multiple methods of birth control, but you know, I certainly didn't have anything, anything in my prayer life, anything in the Holy Spirit's relationship with me telling me I was doing the wrong thing. And in fact... When you look back on it from the perspective of hindsight, we're obviously doing the right thing because we weren't to the point of saying, okay, she's off the pill by X number of days and now we're having unprotected sex with the desire to have children. Let's just say our effectiveness rate was pretty unbelievable. And you know, it's not that I have a hard time sympathizing with people who struggle to, to get pregnant and have kids. I'm totally able to sympathize. I have nothing but sympathy for people who struggle. Where I struggle is empathizing because it's so far beyond my experience that for us it, it was easy in a way for us that I know that it's incredibly difficult and challenging for some couples. So we ended up you know, going down the line, starting a family, having kids, and you know that whole process, I know that having children puts pressure on most relationships, and there's no doubt that there were points in the early part of parenting 
where there was pressure on our relationships because I'm taking things from the perspective of what I knew, which was my set of parents. She's doing things from the perspective of what she knew, which was her set of parents. And despite the fact that both we didn't have the baggage of any one of those relationships being unstable, her parents were married until death parted them. My parents were married until death parted them. But and, and even though they were fairly similar to each other, the the style of parenting was different enough in enough ways. I guess it's one of those things where the more similar you are, the more glaring little differences seem. So we had, you know, we had a fair amount of discussion and even occasional conflict over questions of the right or the wrong way or the best or the worst way to, to manage certain parenting decisions. But I guess all the way through it, we were a team. When I talk early on, I believe it was probably inappropriate conversations number 12 or 13 on companionship marriage, using the writing and the worldview of David R. Mace, I really wanted to, yeah, number 13, I really wanted to talk about that from the perspective of how it reflects my own marriage. I don't think I was strong enough in the way I worded it back then to say, listen, we're in this together. And the very first thing we did was we just cast aside any sort of gender ideas of what was supposed to happen, and we cast aside any sort of hierarchy. I happened to be better and stronger and a little more focused on things theological. So I did on you know on some sort of... <clears throat> you've got some people in the church who say, well, the man needs to be the spiritual leader of the family. But if I took on that role to one degree or another, it wasn't because I felt like gender drove it. It was just it's kind of where, I, where my strengths were. My wife, on the other hand, came from a family where finances were critically important. And it was an area of greater emphasis for her. I don't do anywhere near as much with finances as she does. I... I sometimes refer, and not even in a joking manner, to her as the chief financial officer of our family unit. And I guess for some people, that could be so threatening to their masculinity that could lead to inevitable divorce. I never put my masculinity chips on that particular number in this roulette wheel of life we're playing. Didn't matter to me. Collectively, this Greg and Cheryl thing, better off if she's got a beat on the finances. Better off if I've got a beat on what's going on with... You know, how we're managing church life. Long-term planning, I'm a good planner. It's kind of what I do. But even in the area of housework, and it took a few years to get to this. It it wasn't an easy transition. We didn't click right away. But today, I, I do almost all the laundry. And by doing all the laundry, it kind of frees time away that if there's something in the house that Cheryl would like to do, where she has more of a room-to-room focus, then she's free to do that. I also try to do more often be the one doing vacuuming and carpet cleaning as well, just because of the physical nature of those activities. And I sometimes need to remember that you know, my wife has had a knee surgery, so there's certain things that just doesn't make sense to do if, if we're going to be moving furniture from place to place. It's not, again, not a gender-based thing that says who's moving the furniture and who's coming up with the interior decorating design decisions. It's just I don't really care about interior decorating design decisions. And my wife probably shouldn't be doing a lot of furniture moving. So at some point at some point along the way, we came to some decisions about how things were going to be divided up and made sure that by doing the things we do together, as often as we can and as well as we can, then it makes more quality time available later. If one person's trying to do everything, that person's not going to have much energy for anything fun, whether it be watching a movie or doing a recreational activity in the bedroom. It, it doesn't make sense to try to overextend one of those events at the other. Because we've got to remember, we're both working. We both have positions of responsibility in our realm of employment. 
and we both have shared parental responsibilities as well. So I never saw anything odd, although every now and then somebody would pull me aside and tell me it was odd that that we were both changing diapers or that we were both taking kids to the zoo. Because the other thing is when my wife finally did get her first real job, it was third shift. So you get away from that I'm on second, she's on first ships in the night situation. But for years, more than a dozen years, she was working in the middle of the night. Meaning that when kids came along, she's working in the middle of the night. Uh, I definitely had responsibilities as a father to be engaging in recreational and educational activities with the kids in such a way that somebody who just worked all night could still sleep. So no, I mean, I would look at people and say, you can think that it's really incredibly, wonderfully progressive that I'm a dad who's taking my kids to the zoo. It's far more pragmatic than that. I just need my kids to be able to be loud and have outdoor experiences without doing it in our front yard or in our backyard where the noise that they're making is going to wake up somebody inside who is desperately trying to sleep. You know, when it comes to the origin story, uh, you know, I think I covered that better in the earlier first year inappropriate conversation show, first or second year, whatever that was. But it's hard for me to point to any point and talk about a beginning. And this is tough because unless I begin to talk about things sexual and talk about first times for this activity, that activity, the other activity, which is where I think my wife would get extremely uncomfortable. Unless I go there, then I don't necessarily see beginnings. Yes, there was a first date. Yes, there was a marriage date. Some of those other sort of things. But I've got a forever perspective. And I think part of that is something I shared just this year in more detail than I ever had before in inappropriate conversations about the verticality of time. If you don't necessarily see time as moving horizontally, as cause and effect, event after event, stacking upon one another, but instead have a perception that's a little bit more eternal, and that kind of an understanding that from at least God's from God's perspective, everything I have done and ever will do is happening right now. Then talking about first moments, last moments doesn't make much sense. Every day is the first day of this relationship and every day is potentially the last day of this relationship and it creates a a great deal of urgency to live in the now and i think that if there's any one piece of advice i would give especially to christian married couples because i think as christians it's a little bit easier to be direct about this say if you believe that there is such a thing as forever you'd best be living in the now because of that if you don't think there's a forever if there's only a next then you can easily get yourself into a place where you're living in the future. And I say this as somebody who does you know, long-term planning for a living or has in the past done planning for a living. You still have to live in the now. So I wake up just about every day. There are occasions when I travel. There's occasions when my wife travels. But I wake up just about every day thankful that I'm still in some ways at the beginning of an incredible journey. At no point have I ever woken up feeling like this was the end of something. I've shared before on inappropriate conversations that at one point in college, I made a semi-joking comment that I didn't expect to live past the age of 40, that I was convinced that if I was working as a political columnist and doing so successfully enough that I was syndicated and my words were published nationwide, not just inside the market of a particular newspaper I was working with, 
that my prediction was that I was going to be assassinated by a radical wing of the pro-life movement, interested in putting a bullet in my head in order to stop me from saying things which are damaging to their cause. In some ways, there's still a little bit of truth to that. The pro-life movement is not as committed to life as they sometimes let on, for one thing. And I know that I say things on a regular basis that are damaging to their cause. I just wish that they would reassess their cause and try to do things which are actually productive. We're, we've just recently hit a place where the Obama administration has made a decision that they're going to dive in headfirst and commit to the idea of birth control, eliminating all barriers, barriers of accessibility due to geography, barriers, barriers of cost, whatever possible, to where that nobody in this country ever has an unwanted pregnancy again. Because the Obama administration, and in this case I agree with them, I, I really don't often agree with them on issues, but on this one I agree with them that the best way to lower the abortion rate in this country is to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Now these are words coming out of my mouth, but you know what? They're words coming out of my parents' mouth 40 years ago. They're probably words that my parents were sharing with their peers over a small group meeting in church 50 years ago. It's obvious. The only people in this country who don't seem to have a clue about the obvious truth here, pro-life movement. So I'm aware of the fact that if I was right about the prediction of being dead at 40 via some sort of assassination by so-called Christians, then I'm living in the plus years now. I've got a decade of plus years behind me, almost. And therefore, I'm going to continue to celebrate every single one of those moments. Because nothing in this world has made me as happy as my love for my wife. This has given me a collateral. It has made it possible for me to share ideas more freely, knowing that there is a stability inside this relationship. I'm trying to remember the exact details of this film that I saw so many years ago that it's hard for me to be specific, and I'll, I'll probably get it wrong. I may even have the movie wrong. I think it's an anthology film from Japan called Kwaidan. And if I'm right, the second segment of it essentially has a man who... Uh, is, he's out exploring or something. He's, he's stuck in the wilderness, he and a friend. His friend's dying of exposure, and he loses consciousness. When he wakes up, a woman, presu presumably some sort of witch or ghost or something, <clears throat> has basically you know, killed his friend. And they make a pact with each other that if he never reveals this fact, that they can be together forever. So you flash forward with them in this happy relationship where they're a happy couple, um, stable, productive home life, everything's great and golden, until one day, for whatever reason, he remembers that night. He remembers it as a dream. He's not sure it really happened. And when he asks her about it, then the perfect idyllic home life disappears. She turns back into the monster that he encountered early in the episode and attacks him. What in the world does that decades-old Japanese horror story have to do with love and happiness? Well, I guess that if there are things that I shared more freely, things that make my wife and I sexually compatible and sexually happy, we sort of have an agreement that that wonderfulness will carry on, but it needs to be just between us. <laughs> and so I look at that story from Japan and this and think to myself, yeah, there are some things which might actually be very helpful to people to hear about a productive, happy long-term, monogamous, sexual life. An ongoing sexual experience, for want of a better word. But there's reasons why I'm not going to share it. Those reasons do not include presuming that if I cross that line, my wife would turn into a monster or something. But it is an agreement that we've made with each other. 
So as I walk this delicate balance on this inappropriate conversation and just talk a little bit about what it's like to navigate so seemingly freely, so somewhat effortlessly between are we living in this city because of her job or mine? And do we relocate to the next city because of my job or hers? Um, The kind of money decisions that seem to rip some families apart. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we've just been blessed. Or maybe I refuse to do things which would bring on any sort of, again, if it's the most important relationship in your life, you act like it. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. I mentioned earlier in the show that David Sanborn, in many ways, has been part of the soundtrack to, uh, if not my life, at least the years of this relationship. And I haven't left myself much time to praise him, so I'll be quick about it. Quoting Wikipedia, Sanborn was born in Tampa, Florida, and grew up in Kirkwood, Missouri. He suffered from polio in his youth, and began playing the saxophone on a physician's advice to strengthen his weakened chest muscles and improve his breathing. This makes sense based on his age. Sanborn born in July of 1945. I want to jump to the allmusic.com website, and the biography written by Scott Yano there. David Sanborn has been the most influential saxophonist on pop, R&B, and crossover players of the past 20 years. Most of his recordings have been in the dance, music, R&B vein, although Sanborn is a capable jazz player. His greatest contributions to music have been his passionate sound, with its crying and squealing high notes, and his emotional interpretations of melodies which generally uplift any record he is on. Unlike his countless number of imitators, Sanborn is immediately recognizable within two notes. While growing up in St. Louis, Sanborn played with many Chicago blues greats, including Albert King, and became a skilled alto saxophonist despite battling polio in his youth. I first remember hearing Sanborn on a Warner Brothers Lost Leader album called The Works. In fact, Sanborn appeared on one of the four sides of the album that was my favorite had tracks by Fleetwood Mac, Al Jarreau, Bonnie Raitt, Graham Central Station, and David Sanborn. Later I would pick up enough CDs that I looked in my MP3 player, noting that I have 29 songs by Sanborn, and feeling that that means that in some ways I've, I've cut him off a little bit. I haven't been fair to him, because I think the relationship of the number of songs of his that's on my MP3 player versus the number of songs I actually own on CD... It just seems like the numbers are kind of a little bit out of whack. My favorite of all of them, though, is a song called Love and Happiness from his uh, live album, Straight to the Heart.
This is probably also the song that my wife would cite as her favorite of all of David Sanborn's music. There's a couple more things about Sanborn that I'd like to point out, though. One of them is that uh, the uh, author of the uh, biography on allmusic.com mentioned his appearance with other artists. And really, he's made some incredible contributions to albums that I can't imagine exactly how good the album could have been without him. If you pull Sanborn's work from Roger Waters' The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, you do critical damage, not just to the title track, but to the album itself. He pops up in those sorts of situations. So, uh, you know, Sanborn, not just a soloist. In fact, his most recent release on his official website is an album called Enjoy the View. It's a collaboration with him, Bobby Hutcherson, Joey DeFrancesco, and Billy Hart. Sanborn's also working on a solo album right now that, according to his own website, could be available later this year. The other thing I want to cite Sanborn for, though, and this is something I hadn't thought about until I was doing the research for this different drummer segment, meaning that I knew I was going to name Sanborn as a different drummer because it was just a, you could take it for granted. But then I thought, well, maybe I should think a little bit more about the reasons behind that. One of them was a reason that I'd completely forgotten. Sanborn was part of a music show originally called Sunday Night in the 80s, but later in the late 80s and 90s turned into a show called Night Music, and his guests during the run of that show, just incredible. Uh, first, you know, a lot of the kind of names that you would expect to see in uh, jazz, and especially the kind of jazz that, that Sanborn was playing. Al Jarreau, Earl Clue, Donald Fagan, those type of people. But his guests also included a variety of folks that I would consider to be you know, among my favorite musicians. Maria McKee, Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, Kronos Quartet, LL Cool J. I'm intentionally picking variety here, but it's not hard to find the variety. Indigo Girls, Sonic Youth, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nick Cave. These are the people who are appearing on this music show hosted by David Sanborn. The one that I can remember, upstairs in my uh, fiancé's parents' home. I don't remember what time of year it was. It, it seems like it must have been summer or early fall that I would have seen it. Probably on a Friday night. Episode 212 featuring Conway Twitty. The Residence, Kronos Quartet, and Aster Aweke. The Residence, Conway Twitty, and Kronos Quartet appearing together on a show hosted by David Sanborn is perhaps one of the strangest things that has ever come out of my mouth before. I remember seeing the show years ago. I also just today found a clip of it on YouTube. If I get the opportunity, I'll share a link to that in the show notes because it gives you a sense of the range of David Sanborn. This is somebody who didn't just love his kind of music. This is a man who loved music. And his passion for music, as mentioned by All Music Guide, definitely stands out. This is not the first time that I've spoken about my relationship with my wife on inappropriate conversations. And I still feel like every time I do, it comes up considerably short. I think that's going to be true at any future time that I might attempt it. And it's not just that there's 33 years of experience from a breadth perspective. There's actually much more depth than that 33 years could possibly represent. In fact, there's probably much more depth than the rest of our lives could possibly represent. And I don't know of any other way to describe it other than the fact that, you know, from very early on, I made decisions 
where to go to school, for example, uh, what major to go into, how many years to be in college that were based on the fact that I felt like the most important thing was this relationship with Cheryl. I think that at this point in my life, looking back on everything I've experienced before, it's an absolute unmitigated no-brainer that that was the right call. We grew up in a time when there was sort of an expectation that if you studied hard, got good grades, were a, you know a very good, solid apprentice, were aggressive about your career, that you could land a job for the rest of your life. We had a notion when I was very young that the company would take care of you. My father worked at the same hospital for almost all the years of my life I can remember, for example. My wife's dad worked for the same company, not for that big of a chunk of his career, but for almost all the time that I knew him, he worked for the same company. That's just not true anymore. It no longer makes sense to think of somebody spending most of their time making a commitment to an education decision or an apprentice decision or a career decision because the single, most enduring, rock-solid relationship in my life is my wife. It's not my work. It's not my church. It's not even my friends. I've had friendships that have what I would consider to be an unbelievable depth to them. There may be an occasion when I dive in and share more about those friendships, but those friendships are built on a foundation called Cheryl. I remember having a conversation online on the forum on Simply Syndicated back when simplysyndicated.com had a forum. People were talking about sexual preference, human sexuality, uh, things of that nature. And I think what I said then is how I'll end this show. My sexual preference. I never stopped to think about things like heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual. I'm heterosexual. I've always assumed I'm heterosexual and not something I challenge too much because my sexual preference is Cheryl. Thanks for listening.